Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're continuing our series, The True Christian. So let's turn in our Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Let No One Disqualify You. memories of taking part in track events when I was in high school. I wasn't a very fast runner, but I was a marathon runner. And I would say, even if I was slow, I would have the inner fortitude to win a long race because I'm capable of suffering more than you. Well, that was the theory I convinced myself of anyway. Well, nonetheless, I do remember that it was possible to be disqualified in a race. Well, you could jump offside before the race began. That was a disqualifier. So was in a long race getting the help from someone else. And of course, today at modern day Olympics, performance enhancing drugs in your bloodstream or urine sample, that's going to disqualify you. That is, it is possible to end the race and find out you've been disqualified. Can that happen in another race, the race of our faith? the race to win the crown of life. Well, in 2 Timothy 2 verse 5, Paul says that an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. That is, do it Christ's way or face disqualification. What can disqualify us in our faith? Well, let's read Colossians 2, 16 to 19. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belong to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So I want you to notice that two times, first in verse 16, second time in verse 18, Paul repeats a phrase. That phrase is, let no one. So Paul's concerned that there are people who had caught the ear and the hearts of the Christians in Colossae. And if these people gained a hearing and then their teaching were accepted or followed and made a part of the Colossian expression of faith, well, the Colossians would be disqualified from receiving the prize of eternal life. And I depress this at the outset because especially in the Western world, we tend to view contradictions to our faith as mere differences of opinion. And that perhaps, as you know, as one preacher recently said about a significant heresy, he said, look, we just need to agree to disagree. Now, it is true that there are things not central to our faith that Christians do disagree with one another. But there are other things that are central to our faith in which there can be no daylight between us. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So then, should we, as some in the West say, simply agree to disagree about teachings of demons? Should we, well, say, you know, you have your perspective and the demons have a legitimate perspective on the other side? I mean, after all, aren't they entitled to their say? No, no, we shouldn't say that. There are doctrines that if you give room to them, they'll disqualify you. You'll lose the race. You won't win. Well, now let's get back to Colossians. There are two let no one statements in this text. The first one doesn't warn against disqualification. Rather, the first one warns that we let no one pass judgment on us. 
Now, I'm going to say that if we succumb to the intimidation and crumble under those who pass judgment, we may also be disqualified. So clearly, look at verse 16. Paul's referring to Judaizers. And if you're unfamiliar with the term Judaizers, well, they were a group of so-called Jewish Christians, and they argue that unless the Gentiles submit to circumcision and Jewish dietary restrictions and all the other ceremonial laws in Israel, that then those Gentiles would not be saved. And Paul was in a constant battle with these people, for they were stating that we're not only saved by Christ in his cross, but we're saved by the cross plus keeping the Jewish ceremonial laws. And Paul said, that's an evil heresy. That's a doctrine of demons. Notice how he warned the Galatian Christians, Galatians 5, 2-4. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So it's not just a matter of getting circumcised, said Paul. It's a matter that you now testify that the cross is not enough. Something needs to be added to it, as if Christ's work was not finished. That severs you from Christ. That's a damnable heresy. That's a doctrine of demons. That's falling from grace. But of course, the Judaizers, wherever they went, and it seems to me they were actually following Paul wherever he went, and they were creating great pressure. And Paul says that in Antioch, that was a large church, that was the first one that was filled with Gentiles, that the Judaizers showed up and put on so much pressure that even the great Peter himself capitulated to their demands, at least for a while. So let's get back to Colossians 2.16, because I think in this verse, one of the fights against heresy that Paul has in mind is the fight against the Judaizers. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or in regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Well, food, drink, and a festival, and a new moon, and a Sabbath, all of those were Jewish observances. The food and the drink refer to the Levitical food restrictions. That's found in Leviticus chapter 11, along with other references. Israel was forbidden from eating a variety of different animals, as well as a variety of different forms of marine life. Now, often the question is asked, well, why was Israel forbidden these foods? Was it simply for health reasons? Well, you know, in some cases, yeah, that's the case. But it was also the case that the special diet of Israel marked them as distinct among the nations. If observed, those food rules would keep Israel from the homes of the people of the nations around them, nations and people that worshiped idols. All those rules made Israel distinct and kept them from idolatry. And that explains why the Gentiles are not required to keep those rules. The food rules were not for salvation. Rather, they were to create a unique and distinct nation, a people group unlike any other people on earth. Now, the festivals that Paul mentions, those festivals, again, were Jewish festivals. Deuteronomy 16 tells us there were three main ones. They are, first of all, Passover. That's a celebration of deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Then there's the Feast of Weeks, which is a festival of the harvest in which Israel is called to rejoice in the abundance of God. And then finally, the Feast of Booths, which was a celebration of God's care for Israel when they were in the wilderness. And each of these festivals were intended to remind Israel of the mercy and the kindness of God for their nation. 
But each of those festivals were also uniquely Jewish. Again, no Gentile was called upon to do them. Indeed, I would say that in many cases, it would have been impossible for the Gentiles to keep those festivals. You know, some years ago, one of the silliest books I've ever seen in a long time, it dealt with the Hebrew word Shemitah. It's a word for the sabbatical year. And this was to be celebrated in Israel every seventh year. The land of Israel was to remain fallow that year. No planting or harvesting was to be done. God promised that the abundance from the prior year would sustain them in the Shemitah year. At any rate, this silly book argued that because America didn't keep the sabbatical year, God would curse them. That's insane. Listen, God never gave such a command to America or to Poland, or India, or China. He gave it uniquely to Israel. See, I remember how many people panicked when they read that book. I even remember one person wondering, you know, if I was truly a Christian because I said the book was crazy. Ignore it, I said. Use it for toilet paper. You Gentiles shouldn't keep the festivals. That was for Israel. Now, new moons that Paul mentions probably refers to Numbers 28, 11 to 15, in which special offerings were brought to the temple or the tabernacle at the beginning of each month or each new moon. And the Sabbath, well, the Sabbath was also uniquely Jewish. And of course, as is described in the New Testament, Christians also take one day of the week for worship, but we don't do it in the Jewish manner. So let me make something very clear. As a Christian, look, I am pro-Jewish, meaning in the present era, I am a fierce proponent of the modern state of Israel and its right to exist and defend itself. I also believe that all Gentile Christians owe it to Israel, an eternal sense of gratitude, for from them have come Abraham, the prophets, the scripture, the Christ who is forever blessed. But I'm not Jewish. Listen, I'm a Gentile. I've been grafted into the spiritual vine of Israel through Jesus who saved me by his once for all death on the cross and not through keeping of Jewish ceremonies, ceremonies that were never intended to save, but ceremonies that were uniquely intended only for Israel. I'm saved by Christ alone, not by Old Testament ceremonial laws. I'm sure you're already well familiar with the reason we celebrate the Christmas season. But sometimes, what we know needs to be reconciled with what we feel. And this holiday season, Back to the Bible Canada has the resource to help you do just that. Quiet Spaces for Christmas. It's a 30-day devotional tool to help refresh and recharge your spirit with the Christmas truths you already know. Whether you're lonely, grieving, or lacking the joy that should come with the season, this devotional will renew you with the reassurance that our Savior has come and leave you singing His praise well beyond the Christmas season. Request Quiet Spaces for Christmas for free or request our new free holiday resource for kids, Jake and the Christmas Surprise, at backtothebible.ca. Please be sure to select one free resource only, but you're welcome to purchase the other at the same time. Paul ended his message regarding Jewish questions with the statement, these are a shadow of the things to come. The substance is Christ. And he means, of course, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the ceremonial law. 
his one death on the cross finally explains what the ceremonial sacrificial ritual was all about. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Jesus needed to be our atoning sacrifice. If not, we would remain in sin. That's what the ceremonial law teaches us. But then Paul goes on to say, let no one, and he means he sharpens his critique. Let no one disqualify you, he says. Let no one make null and void your faith in Christ and in Christ alone. That assumes, of course, that such a thing could happen. And now Paul talks about something else that also might disqualify the believer. And he mentions four things. The first thing he mentions is asceticism. Well, normally when we read the word in English, we think of some program of self-denial, and that is intended here. But the Greek word for asceticism can simply be translated as humility. Now, there's nothing wrong with humility, but the implication behind the word is false humility, the appearance of humility. Now, sometimes the word asceticism or humility was used for fasting. You might remember that Jesus taught on this. He spoke about those that fasted. They wore particular clothing so that they might be seen by others and appear to be humble. It's an outward form of something, but that outward form was simply a thin veneer for pride. Some have suggested that in Colossae, there might have even been a religious festival that included fasting in order to produce visions and spiritual experiences. A second phase, a second warning of what might disqualify us is the worship of angels. And on this note, there is some discussion whether the grammar of this passage is such that we should translate this as the worship of angels or worship with angels. And for my part, I'm convinced that our Bible has it right. What is denounced is the worship of angels. And on this note, there were Jewish cults in those days that wanted to name all of the angels, and they came very close to worshiping them. Indeed, the early Christian teacher Irenaeus, in his famous work in AD 180s, entitled Against Heresies, speaks of a widespread practice in some circles of angel worship. And Arrhenius talks about the firm Christian response condemning this practice utterly. But stop here for a moment and think about the implications of worshiping anything or praying to anyone other than to God in Christ. Now, it might be that Paul is here condemning a practice in Judaism, but it's also quite possible that in the Greek and Roman world, angels were thought of as rulers of the planetary spheres. And the idea here is that angels were very much like the gods, and to get to know them and their various spheres of authority and what they actually did and their power to operate, that was a sign of advanced spirituality. Have nothing to do with that, says Paul. And a third warning is about people going on in detail about visions. Oh my. You know, I've had a vision, someone says, and everyone's head just pops up. You know, in some circles, that person gets instant credibility. I've seen things in the spiritual realm, he or she says, and how impressive that looks to some, especially to the gullible and the impressionable, and especially in our age. Some time ago, I wrote a book on heaven and hell, and I began by discrediting all the people who write books claiming that they've been to heaven or to hell, and now they come back and they show us what they saw. See, rather than studying the text of Scripture, they're like moths to a flame, always far more interested in the latest revelation, the latest insight, the latest spiritual vision than they are in hardcore Bible study. And then fourth, those who are puffed up, without reason by their sensuous mind. 
It's a catch-all category. These are the people who claim spiritual insight, and they believe they're important because of it. You know, he's filled with an exalted estimation of himself, says Paul. You know, it must be important, someone says. Look at the things that I have to share. Now, notice what Paul's conclusion to all of this is. It's in verse 19. And not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. That is, all of this, spiritual revelations from God, special visions, knowledge of the unseen spiritual things, their names, their functions, all of that disqualifies because the person who clings to that doesn't hold to Christ, who's the head of the church. No, no, they're not fascinated by Christ in his glory. They're fascinated by the latest spiritual revelation. In short, says Paul, you've allowed yourself to be influenced by evil spirits instead of Christ. Those evil spirits don't give leadership to the church. Only Christ does. As the body of Christ is nurtured and nourished by Christ, not those spiritual revelations. And I need to stop and notice how often it is today that certain segments of the body of Christ are obsessed with things that they believe come from a higher form of spirituality. But in truth, they've become the Jesus plus people. That is, simple faith in Jesus, they think, isn't sufficient. So you've got to add something to Jesus. Either it's Jewish traditions or a heightened spiritual experience in which people believe they've been launched to a higher spiritual plane. That is, they become convinced that simply knowing Christ is not enough. And I, for myself, am appalled by a certain class of preacher who's obsessed by telling his audience that the Lord showed him something last week rather than by humbly explaining the text of Scripture and through that getting people to trust in Christ. See, Jesus plus that absolutely disqualifies you. Now the next section, Colossians 2, 20 to 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now stop with that one phrase. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world. See that phrase, elemental spirits of the world. That can also be translated as basic principles of the world. Paul uses the same phrase back in Colossians 2.8 when he spoke of worldly philosophy, empty deceit, things based on human traditions. These are the things that are fundamental to pagan ways of thinking. These are the things that magnify human pride. They minimize humility. Everything is included in this, from pagan magic to demonic spirits to Jewish traditions meant to replace the once-for-all work of Christ on the cross as the only means of salvation. If I were to put elemental spirits into my own words, I would say, it's the whole shooting match. Everything from pagan religion to secular philosophy to Jewish works theology to supposed personalized revelations from God. Paul says, when you came to Christ, you died to the whole shooting match. You died to everything that does not understand the supremacy of Jesus, his divine being, his final work on the cross, the once for all revelation that he gave. You died to everything that does not make the historic revelation of Jesus the most important thing. 
Someone will say, ah, but what about the latest vision? To answer that, we say, if you're in Christ, you died to everything in which Christ does not reign supreme in reason, in discussion, and in your imagination. Christ's supremacy. For if it's not that, you're disqualified. Listen to Paul's argument. Anyone who's come to Christ has died to the elemental spirits. And if that describes you, if you're truly in Christ, why do you live as if you still have those things? Why does that still occupy your imagination? And then Paul gets back to the earlier discussion, speaking of asceticism, and then combining that idea with Jewish restrictions in diet and Jewish traditions and things that define spirituality in terms of what you didn't eat or didn't touch, all the things that are part of this world. Paul calls all of that self-made religion. Self-made religion is about strict observances or about esoteric experiences. Don't you know, says Paul, that all you ever needed was Christ? that seem too simple? Perhaps, just perhaps, you've not understood the magnificence of Christ. Let's get back to where we began. I entitled this message, Let No One Disqualify You. I pointed out that in athletics, you can be disqualified. What then disqualifies the Christian from the prize? The answer is, we're disqualified when we fail to see the supremacy, the unsurpassed greatness, and the glory of Jesus. It's when we fail to gaze at him and realize there's nothing to be added. Indeed, to add something to Christ is a mockery of his finished work. And when we do that, we're disqualified. Instead, run to the head. Be nourished by Jesus. Make Jesus your bread of life as well as your satisfaction and your eternal joy. Let no one disqualify you from the prize. John, I have a question for you, and this seems to rear its head a lot these days, but how should we consider the words of those who claim to have new revelations? Um, Yes, I mean, I I think uh, anyone that claims to have a revelation that is somehow, let's say, supracultural, that is, it tells you the truth about God for all times, uh, we should absolutely dismiss this every single time. God has told us all that we need for life and salvation, and that book is done. It's finished in the Bible. Now, if someone has a new revelation about, you know, being more obedient to Christ in our daily life, I'm good for that, but that's kind of time-bound stuff. The supracultural stuff, that's been complete once and for all. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The True Christian, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. You know, as a Christian, you may have had questions about the Bible or spiritual life that are hard to answer. Perhaps you felt that certain questions are best kept to yourself, especially those that involve doubts. Well, here at Back to the Bible Canada, we believe in bringing these to light. Finding answers to difficult questions is critical for an unwavering and steadfast faith. That's why we're adding to a very popular video series from a number of years ago called Ask Dr. John. We gathered up our most complex and frequently asked questions for Dr. John to unpack in a two-part series on YouTube, airing November 17th. So be sure to check us out on YouTube. Subscribe and hit the notification bell so you never miss the next episode. 
And if you're able, please consider a donation to help make resources like these available for free to all. You can give at backtothebible.ca.